Hi, everybody. Before we start the show, I want to say a few things about George Floyd's murder and the heavy-handed treatment of U.S. protesters. We at the Africa Program are heartbroken and angry. Racism is a stain on our democracy. It's an obstacle to our republic's lofty goals that we are all created equal, and yes, that black lives matter. On a personal note, it's a bit strange for me to talk about domestic affairs in a professional setting, but I believe it's vital, and we at the Africa Program will start to do more of it, to speak out against injustice and elevate African voices in this conversation. I hope you'll join us. Thank you, and here's today's show. Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Ugandan President Museveni has leaned forward in his response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What are the economic and political implications of his approach? And Malagasy President Rajaline is pushing his herbal remedy for COVID-19, and other countries are signing up. What is a constructive response to the president's organic tonic? Plus, we discuss digital solutions to address the COVID-19 challenge in sub-Saharan Africa. What are the opportunities to promote the continent's digital transformation even during a pandemic? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. President Museveni imposed one of the most stringent lockdowns on the continent. He's chastised legislators for giving themselves a pay raid. He released a home workout video. He's also used the disease to arrest or sideline his political opponents. I've decided to close the educational institutions even before the occurrence of a single corona incident because I have observed the situation in other countries. How do we make sense of Uganda's response to COVID-19? Joining me today to discuss Uganda and other issues is Ilana Cohen, Senior Market Engagement Director at GSMA, Greg Cohen, no relation, co-founder and COO of Asoko Insight, and joining us later for our main discussion will be AU Commissioner for Infrastructure and Energy, Dr. Amani Abuzaid. All right, let's start with what's happening in Uganda. President Museveni jolted into action when the the outbreak happened in his country. This is really not very surprising for a leader who has long won applause and kudos for his approach to AIDS and HIV. He shut down the country. He's been on the uh, the pulpit frequently talking to his constituents, and he's challenged disinformation about the virus. But of course, it is never simple when it comes to Uganda. So we're going to have to tackle this in two parts. I want to first talk about Uganda's response to the health and economic situation, where I think he's been really pragmatic. He's made adjustments throughout the lockdown. We're seeing him slowly ease conditions. And, you know, he's worked with the private sector, at least it the way that I understand it, to ease some of these economic hardships. And uh, Ilana, in GSMA's report, Digital Solutions for the Urban Poor, Uganda makes these repeated appearances for how to use mobile technology to improve services. And I, I think this is true when we look at COVID. It would be helpful for our audience to understand why does Uganda show up so much in your report and in conversations about the adoption of digital technology and any insight, particularly on how ICT taxes and other issues are helping or hindering Ugandans to adopt these services. Thanks, Judd. I'm really excited to be here. 
First of all, mobile technology really plays a key role in supporting a lot of Uganda's policy priorities, which are outlined in the country's national development plan. And GSMA is working with a lot of stakeholders in Uganda on the next iteration of this plan and how mobile technology and digital solutions can be even more integrated into achieving social and economic improvements. And the result that we're seeing in Uganda in terms of digital transformation is is really apparent in some of the mobile adoption rates. So the 2G networks there nearly cover the entire population and mobile broadband networks, so 3G and 4G networks, are cover four and five people in the country. There's 45% of the population now that are mobile subscribers and over half of them are using mobile internet services. And a key thing has really been that mobile money has become a a significant driver of financial inclusion in Uganda. And there are still mobile adoption gaps, but the thing to keep in mind here is the growth. This growth then really provides a good foundation for mobile to improve things. And we're seeing this in things like service delivery, so solutions that leapfrog infrastructure and financing gaps in health, education, and utilities. Also good governance, right? So transparency and accountability in government tax receipts and social security disbursements. And finally, digital entrepreneurship. And that's a great foundation, particularly right now for, for COVID response. It gives the ability to share information with citizens, get information from them, look at trends in mobile big data, and, and provide financial channels. You know, an, an area that we've supported a lot in Uganda uh, with our program's funding from, from DFID has been digitizing utility services like energy and water and sanitation. For water services, Uganda's National Water and Sewerage Commission is known widely as one of the first water utilities in Africa to go cashless. And this is really important because it helps the utility digitize their records and it helps them collect their revenue more easily. The second area, sanitation. Mobile has become a really key logistics tool for sanitation services in Kampala. So Just to explain, 94% of the city doesn't have sewer sanitation, and they rely on the emptying of pit latrines and septic tanks. So we supported the expansion of the Kampala Capital City Authority's platform that combines a call center and a mobile app to facilitate this pit latrine emptying. And then the, the data is collected by the pit latrine operators, and that helps the city site and size their treatment facilities better. Finally, Uganda has been a really key growth market for pay-as-you-go solar. So this is household solar that gives people the power to keep their phones charged and in some cases make use of income-generating appliances, which is super crucial in this current crisis. And this kind of energy service is totally interlinked with mobile money because people pay for their solar home systems through installments. And what we've seen is great evidence from Uganda and across Africa for how the demand for solar drives digital and financial inclusion. It's a great deep dive. Thank you, Lana. And I, I want to stay on this economic dimension because, Greg, your company, Asoko Insight, you specialize in providing banks and investors and corporations with sector analysis and, and private sector company information. And you've done a lot of work on Uganda as well, from mining to coffee to even the cosmetic sector. So What are you hearing about sort of Uganda's economic recovery and the role of the government in assisting companies to weather the storm and then prepare for a post-COVID world? Sure. Thanks, Judd. I'll focus mainly on agriculture just because that's where we have the most expertise and where we're seeing the most news. 
you know, demand for most commodities has has greatered across the globe and with it prices. So there, so there's hurt across the board. With agricultural commodities as the main export for Uganda, that's several billion dollars of lost revenue in, in a very short time frame. And same with foreign reserves and most acutely reduced income for farmers. SMEs in particular, which you know we aim to cover as much as possible, are getting hammered. And there's pretty severe liquidity issues, difficulty getting new credit from banks. Again, this is not necessarily unique to Uganda. We're, we're seeing it across a number of, of markets, but something that's definitely raised from our local sources. And, you know, the government's indicated there's going to be fiscal and monetary measures to to support the credit environment, you know, not unlike we're seeing in, in other regions, but we'll likely see a lot of non-performing loans in 2020 and we'll see what the government actually rolls out. And I agree it's it's been relatively pragmatic with, with dealing with the COVID environment through this point. On you know, some points on the bright side, I think, you know, it's good weather conditions this year and the country seems to be opening up quite well. So if things stay on track, there'll likely be a spike in, in crop and livestock production, which will immediately serve both the domestic and, and export markets to pick things back up. Our local contacts all speak pretty optimistically about things coming back. So, so that's a good it's a good signal. And then that would be over the next several months. It's also a good opportunity, and, and obviously this needs investment, but to focus on import substitution in, in the key processing sectors. Uganda obviously being very, very agriculturally heavy. A, a lot of it is raw commodity exports, but there is manufacturing capacity that can certainly be doubled down on to help build local resilience in the future. Uganda has a direct sales model where they have developed good relationships with their buyers. So it's been able to still get revenue out of, out of coffee. That's opposite for tea, for example, which mainly goes through the Mombasa auction in Kenya, and, and, and that remains closed through mid-July. So there's a significant oversupply of tea right now in Uganda, which will be interesting on how, you know, if there's any innovative ways on, on how they deal with that. And then finally, you know, there, there's a key risk factor that's starting to become a bit more concerning, which is the locust infestation. So that's a much more prevalent issue in Kenya. It's still unclear how the locusts are going to migrate, but if they move through northwestern Kenya, it could hit Uganda and that's going to compound uh, the problems. That's a bit of what's going on on, on the agricultural side. That's great. You know, we've been doing these episodes over the last couple of months where we've tried to do these deep dives into how individual countries are responding to COVID-19. With Uganda, true for many countries, it's never just about one particular sector or the economic side of it. There's also a political side of it. Museveni's made a number of really popular moves. I said it at the top. He's condemned MPs who were trying to give themselves a raise. He fired four officials for uh, inflating COVID-19 food prices. But his government has done some things that have been fairly concerning, truly. I mean, he's arrested activists and journalists. There's been an allegation that his security forces beat uh, an associate of presidential candidate Bobby Wine, also, who has been on our show a couple of times. He's delivering food to people in need, but it seems like he's preventing his opponents from doing the same. And then very ominously, he said it would be madness to hold an election next year if there's still coronavirus. And those who have been listening to our show and follow Uganda know that this is going to be a very competitive election. So Museveni has always been an expert at using crisis for political gain. I think that while we talk about the economic issues and the health issues, we have to keep this in front of our mind and think about what are the political ramifications of this crisis in Uganda and elsewhere.
let's shift to Madagascar. President Rajaline is getting a lot of news coverage for his herbal remedy for COVID-19. It's called COVID Organics or CVO. Several African countries have already put in orders for the tonic, which President Andre Rajarilina launched last month, saying it had cured two people. Several countries have requested it and now they're receiving shipments. And this is a really tricky subject. And I don't think it's our place to say whether or not this herbal tonic will work. It's not very productive to do so. In fact, Rajaline now is spending a lot of time lashing out at detractors who doubt his cure. That's a distraction in a country that seems to be on the cusp of a very serious outbreak. Just last month, the government deployed doctors and soldiers to its second largest city. They started defining dead bodies uh, in the city. So talking about whether or not uh, COVID organics is quackery or whether it is a organic solution, I don't think is very helpful. And the smartest approach that I want to highlight for our audience is where ECOWAS and the African CDC and President Buhari of Nigeria have been, which is we're going to collect data on uh, COVID organics. We'll figure out if it's sufficient. And then they're also at the same time working with the Malagashi government to broaden the toolkit. Ilana, in in your report, you profile Luwat, which offers waterless flush toilet systems and sanitation solutions for off-grid solutions. This seems like this could be, you know, one of those tools in the toolkit. What is this and, and what is its potential in Madagascar? Sanitation is like consistently one of the most grossly underestimated and underinvested in areas in development. During COVID, Sanitation is is super important because we know social distancing in a lot of these contexts isn't possible. And hygiene then becomes the most important defense mechanism. And when you don't have good sanitation, it means that water is getting contaminated. The point here is that water and sanitation investment right now is a no regrets investment. It's always going to be a win. And in Madagascar, it's really true. So it ranks fourth worst in the world for sanitation. And the city is growing. Uh, Antananarivo specifically is, is growing really fast. And a lot of the, the waste there just ends up in, in rivers, in the streets. And so diarrheal diseases are the second leading cause of death. And like I mentioned, it's no small thing to just suddenly build a sewer network. So enter organizations like Luwat. Luwat developed a, a waterless toilet that is containerized. The structure is a seat connected to an odorless cartridge below with a biodegradable lining. And this then can be safely collected for transport and and treatment in an anaerobic digester. So there's no use of water and Luat transforms the waste into fertilizer, electricity and biogas. And GSMA was able to support Luat with a grant to develop a mobile and web-based logistics platform. So this allows them to really operate this decentralized business, communicate with customers, monitor and schedule waste collection and toilet servicing and and track mobile money payments that are made by the customers. And so this tool is is super important to Luwa. It's helping them cut their operational costs by 15 to 25% so that they can scale. That's really great. It's a really exciting initiative. And again, I think underscores the potential of mobile technology. And Madagascar is this challenging place where data is really hard to come by. Uh, there's a phenomenal Reuters report, which had you know a number of different details around COVID-19 in Africa. And when it came to Madagascar, it was incredibly difficult to nail down how many intensive care beds they had. It took them five weeks, they said, to just get the health ministry to respond to the number of ventilators the country has. And I 
suspect that you've had the same challenges when it comes to understanding, you know, the private sector. But correct me if I'm wrong, like what are the challenges in understanding investment opportunities in Madagascar and the availability of data? And then what are the ways that we can work to create a better picture of where this country is going in terms of its health and economic infrastructure? I wish I had some real novel data-driven insights, but you're you're exactly right. I think, you know, the the country is a market that's at the frontier of the frontier and in in the, you know, in the corporate data world I'll, I'll speak to that correlates specifically with information opacity, right? It makes it especially acute. And from what we know, I mean, there are about four big banks out of 10 that manage about 90% of of, you know, of the assets in the country and only 6% of the population is banked. So, you know, the SME financing gap is likely very significant. Overall, unfortunately, I mean, outside of a few French financial institutions, Asoco as a company doesn't have much data demand for Madagascar, which makes it difficult to invest in data acquisition, which is likely a signal for, you know, uh, for the current state of affairs. Our deal database which tracks all the Africa transactions back to 2015, shows that there's about 25 notable debt and equity deals in Madagascar, most of which is development money, which is very low compared to the other African growth markets. So, you know, if the goal is to scale that up, then there's a real need for investment in investment promotion to make Madagascar a more competitive investment destination. You know, that requires a deeper drive from the government to court the private sector more, more robustly. We're trying now to plug into their corporate registrar to see if we, you know, we can we can start to analyze the, the private company landscape. It's been quite difficult. So I'll only leave it with a, you know, we will continue to push for corporate data transparency there and work with clients, particularly French clients who are looking at the continent as a whole and Madagascar as a destination on how they can most effectively do business with the private sector. And that really, you know, is the is the horse that will pull the cart. That's really helpful, Greg. And I think that's a nice preview of our bigger conversation that we're going to have now. I want to welcome AU Commissioner Abu Zaid to the conversation. Commissioner, can you tell us about the Africa Digital Transformation Strategy? It was improved in February, and what I'm really interested in is both, you know, the vision for the strategy, but then I know the AU Commission has a digital emergency plan to address and fight COVID. I think that would be really helpful to hear how the AU is looking at these two related issues. First, let me thank you for inviting me to into Africa. Happy to be here because it's uh, it's very timely, and I think this is a decisive moment for uh, for Africa. It's true. I mean, COVID nineteen came to uh, disrupt our lives in so many ways, and in Africa particularly, the impact is very high when it comes to livelihoods. Uh, however, there's a light within this crisis, and the light is digitalization. Africa has been very active when it comes to uh, digitalization throughout the last 10 years. And uh, many, many excellent stories have been emerging from our countries when it comes to adopting digital technologies. However, these uh, stories were sporadic, anecdotal, uh, per sector. But what we wanted to do really at the African Union is to have one common story for uh, Africa when it comes to digital and digital transformation. And why is that? It's because this technology is providing us with tools to innovate and to solve our problems in a completely different manner. We don't have to follow anymore the path that was taken by other countries or other continents. So it's 
African problems, and these are solutions to our own problems, like, for instance, providing energy, but paying it with digital money, digital money, which was also invented in Africa, and so on and so forth. That's where uh, the digital transformation strategy comes in. It's kind of um, a master plan for the continent to develop all sectors to to be connected, to develop the skills. And we're given that, you know, a target 2030. And we also highlighted the priorities, the pillars. And in doing that, we also minded the aspects of cybersecurity, so on and so forth. Comes the COVID-19. And as I said, COVID-19 became the biggest catalyst for this transformation. Now, I don't think I need to advocate why we need to transform and use this technology to transform our continent. Now, the question that is asked to us is when and how fast can we do it? And that's very important. So that's one encouraging aspect. However, we have to understand that only almost a third of Africa is connected to the Internet. And very often it's not reliable or very expensive. And there is a divide, geographic, by gender, urban, rural, and so on and so forth. So these are matters that we are working on within our strategy. We have a, a, a plan not only for the emergency situation, but also to allow a smart recovery and to expedite the recovery after post-COVID-19. The idea is to encourage our governments, you know, to in the stimulus packages, you know, to insist on connectivity, to promote, to give more spectrum to companies, to engage uh, the private sector, uh, even our countries through these recommendations, uh, the free internet for uh, young people, I mean, for the education, free for all health facilities, uh, internet. So there were a series of measures to allow our population and our countries to continue function, but also there are specific sectors that needed special support, and we wanted to do that through the stimulus. Now, growing a little bit forward uh, in terms of recovery, also we wanted to make sure that this is not just here and now, but also that it continues and, uh, and to promote, as I said, the smart recovery. So we are establishing a fund as well in order to promote the connectivity and engage the private sector, especially the small and medium enterprises in that sense, but also re-engineering, rethinking all processes and other sectors in which we work at the African Union to make sure that they are tech enabled. So that's in a nutshell what's the strategy and the emergency plan look like. That's really helpful. And at least from an outsider's perspective, it does seem, and this is almost the silver lining for the COVID-19 crisis, is that uh, I think governments are creating better policies around tech and tech adoption. It does seem that in a number of the sectors that you talked about, particularly education, that several countries are thinking in a very innovative way on how to get their students on the internet so they can keep their education going. And then we're going to talk about mobile money and we're going to talk about mobile phone usage, but I've thought that there's been a number of companies that have thought about how to lower the cost for transferring money or to create accounts for free. And I think we'll come out at the end of this, as you said, the light of the tunnel will be that we will see more adoption on the continent. So Ilana, you know, I bet what the commissioner has said really resonates with the work of GSMA. And we had this event on May 21st, 
uh, with TSMA where we talked about mobile digital technology and how it's enabling African urban dwellers to to really weather this crisis. And I, I hope people will watch the full event on our website, but maybe you could just walk us through some of the key insights from your report for our podcast audience. Sure. Thanks, Judd. And um, thanks very much to the to the commissioner. A lot of what she said does does resonate, and GSMA has had had the privilege of working closely with her and with her colleagues on these strategies that she mentioned. Um, just to mention a few things that I think really echo what she was saying, this is a real opportunity. We Globally, we're talking about 3.3 billion people that are covered by 3G networks but don't use mobile internet, and COVID is changing that. We've seen mobile operators reporting an increase in their mobile data customer base and also mobile operators reporting increases in voice and data consumption. So this shows that expanding internet use um, to address the challenges faced by so many in this pandemic is really important. And she's right about some of the cost barriers. There's there's cost barriers on the, the data side, although those have come down a bit in recent years, but there's still an issue on the handset affordability side. And so it's the biggest barrier that we see to mobile phone adoption in general in low and middle income countries. Um, in Africa, there's 39% of the population that has a smartphone and women are on average 20% less likely than men to own a smartphone. So there's a great opportunity here to see how COVID can change this really. Of course, governments also have a, a key role to play because we know that consumer taxes really represent a lot in the cost. Moving back to, to what you asked about the event that we had the other week, we, we really looked at some of the ways that we are seeing mobile uh, support urban dwellers and others respond to COVID. And I think there's there's three key things that I would highlight from that conversation. One was we're seeing a lot of direct financial support via mobile money, which is a, a coordination between governments and mobile operators to really send emergency response funds specifically to low-income households. So we've seen this in Cote d'Ivoire and, and Togo. I think it's fascinating to point out that this is really impressive compared to other countries that are just giving out you know, financial aid the same amount to everyone without taking into consideration need. Uh, the second area, you know, I think we, we talked about water and sanitation, which are really crucial again right now in, in addressing COVID in terms of reducing transmission. So the role that digital can play is apparent in water ATMs. So in a lot of countries, we've seen informal settlements rely on a communal water point that's digitized so that people prepay and that the service is monitored. And then thirdly, we talked about the need for and the challenges around using data, data from mobile operators and data directly collected from mobile fund users. We heard from the International Growth Center about data being a key part of digitizing smart containment policies, uh, using people's phones to get data about their health symptoms when there isn't widespread testing, and using mobile big data on economic activity to monitor changes in, in mobile phone usage and mobile money activities. This is a, a key area where GSMA is working with mobile operators and governments to look at how big data can be used safely, which brings me to my, my final point. It's really important that data is used responsibly in an aggregated and anonymized way to ensure use, end user protection. Um, we have to really be careful that new digital solutions right now aren't putting people at risk or exacerbating existing inequalities. So yeah, it was a really great conversation and, and definitely uh, encourage people to check it out. 
Yeah, exactly. And don't think just because Ilana gave you the top points that you've got it all. You definitely should. It's on our website and it's a really great conversation. Not only does it include GSMA, but it includes Worku Gachu, who is from the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. And I think that that's sort of a tipping the hat to our final conversation today about what the U.S. government can do. But Greg, I wanted you to come on this show because I really like what Soko Insight's doing. And I'm like, oh, this is a great match. And then I went onto the website just to prepare. And you published this fantastic, is it a manifesto? It was the case for data uh, to save Africa's economy. And it's this really powerful argument that talks about, you know, there needs to be this top-down data collection and standardization, as well as a bottom-up incentivization for companies to provide for information. So it's a little different of an angle than what Ilana said, but I think it's all going to connect back to some of the commissioner's objectives uh, in the time of COVID. Can you kind of walk us through, you know, what Isoko is thinking and, and advocating? Of course. Thanks, Judd. Certainly, you know, in line with the whole digitalization of objectives, we're certainly in the working in the same vein. So we focus on the, the corporate side of things, corporate data, and on, you know, SMEs as well. So on the corporate and SME side, if we simplify the ultimate objective, it's how do you get capital flowing more sustainably, more consistently into successful businesses across the continent, specifically into the critical supply chains and the essential businesses right now. There's a lot of inhibitors that make that quite difficult, but what we focus mainly on is the information asymmetry, which, which leads to a real problem for investors that are coming into the continent or investors on the continent. So the question we're focused on is how do we effectively acquire the necessary information and make it as readily available in the same vein, almost at a utility level, if, as if you wanted to do it, a corporate investment in London or, or New York, right? We, it should be just as easy to do that in Africa. So the copy-paste approach would be to have governments make data trans- transparency mandatory. And that typically hasn't worked across most African economies because the tax systems aren't as developed and transparency is understood as punitive on the, on the corporate side. There's progress in certain countries like, like Kenya, but the norm you know, requires a, a change and, and it's going to take some time for that to happen. So what we've seen evidence of working right now, however, is this two-pronged approach that, that you mentioned. And, and that's aggregating the available data sets from all of the reliable sources across the continent. And the data does exist. It's just siloed in, in different repositories around, around the continent. That's one side. And then the other is to really flip that punitive connotation by instead focusing on incentives instead of the, the punitive. And if you incentivize transparency through direct financing opportunities in a more recurrent nature, you see companies really want to, you know, very willing to provide their information. So to give some, some tangible examples, Asoko works with the United Kingdom government, the African Development Bank, London Stock Exchange, a number of private equity firms who are increasingly using digital origination techniques to supplement their pipelines by connecting directly with companies. The companies know that if I provide more information, there's going to be a direct correlation to getting a deal done. So this is an interesting way to innovate when it comes to corporate information accessibility in general, let alone Africa. And it's now viable to roll out and really make a difference on the continent. Finally, and specifically in the midst of the COVID crisis, we're, we're seeing a demand for fast track due diligence, right? You have donors, governments, uh, as well as private equity looking to do deals on the continent that 
typically would have to go through more prolonged diligence cycles. But because of the environment right now, working capital is very important and and due diligence needs to be fast-tracked without being too concessionary. So digital engagement is becoming ever more important. And we're seeing this with a number of our clients where they're building more trust digitally with companies through Zoom. All the engagement is happening without making on-the-ground trips, which is typically rare. But this is becoming more of a norm, and it'll be interesting to see if that really leads to more scalability of of deal origination as we get into the post-COVID era. Commissioner, can I put you on the spot a little bit? I'd, I'd love to hear your reactions to Greg's thoughts and how does the, the AU Commission position itself around these issues around transparency of data, of corporate data, so that you know investments can be fast-tracked and due diligence can happen and all of the things that, that Greg mentioned? Actually, I wanted to comment on, on both uh, interventions because both are, are brilliant. Uh, on the first one, on the, the issue of the smartphones and affordability, it is a real issue. And of course, we have to acknowledge that. However, there are some attempts, initiatives on the continent to produce a low-cost smartphone that we are encouraging and we are working, uh, we are also part of the initiative Smart Africa, if you know this one, which uh, which combines both governments and private sector and operators, private sector of all levels, uh, small, medium and large, African and non-African, so as to also promote these kinds of initiatives. Now, the other aspect I wanted to talk about is when we talk about data in general, and specifically at the time of the corona, earlier you asked me about the emergency plan. More than ever, I mean, we need data and we need data. We need to track and trace people who are infected, people you met and so on and so forth. And we are encouraging governments, of course, to do that. And that's what we put. But we also want to make sure that there is no infringement of privacy and that the data is protected. And the issue of data, data protection in the continent in general is a big issue. So it's not just a question of transparency, but also data protection and cybersecurity. How come we did not talk about that? At the time of COVID-19, all our children are on the, on the internet 24-7. That's why we're putting a lot of emphasis on online security for children, especially now, and we're putting some norms for that. So back to the data point, we do have a framework for the continent, corporate and government on cybersecurity and data protection. Unfortunately, it has never been, despite the advocacy, it has never been really adopted. And governments, I don't think they understood how important this is, which, which and now more than ever, we are sensitizing our governments that, hey, this is a framework. On the one hand, it, when you have the rules, it will allow everybody to work within the rules, uh, but also to safeguard these data. This is one. Two, it will allow also interoperability. Remember, we, our aim is, is for one Africa, so it's important that our systems for security or for protection or whatever to be harmonized. So uh, this is also another aspect the uh, African Union is working with. Third point that I mentioned or it came in the conversation earlier is infodemics, and we have to address that. This is a third aspect that uh, during these times is uh, really crucial. We are all bombarded by all kinds of um, uh, misinformation to the point it became almost as dangerous as the pandemic itself. To put it all in uh, within one context, yes, of course, to the transparency, to the exchange of data. Data is a fantastic tool when used properly, but also we want to make sure that there are the safeguards that are harmonized, accepted by everybody, that allow all of us to work safely and to allow our children to, to be safe also online, not just corporates. 
that's fantastic. And uh, just a couple of reactions from me. First of all, I hope that we can underline this conversation about the urgency around data. That's one. Two, um, I think, Commissioner, you're absolutely right when it comes to cyber and cybersecurity. In Washington, D.C., I, I sometimes think we act as if that isn't a challenge or an issue in Africa. And so I hope this is the first of a couple of conversations we can really push these issues in Washington, D.C. and in other capitals and with African thought leaders about how do we think about cybersecurity, both in terms of, as you said, child protection, but just in terms of a vulnerability to criminal actors uh, that may take advantage of it. And then the third is the question around disinformation. I'm glad that you mentioned it because our next episode is going to focus on that. uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the challenges around disinformation. So think of uh, of our conversation today as a preview for that uh, larger conversation. The final thing that I want to ask you, Commissioner, and being so mindful of your time and, and thankful that you joined us is here in Washington, D.C., this podcast does focus a lot about U.S. policy. There's been a number of initiatives that are really, I think, eager, keen, excited about opportunities for U.S. investment in the Africa tech sector, both the new U.S. Development Finance Corporation, but you can look at USTDA, USAID, Prosper Africa, and they're all talking about opportunities uh, in Africa's tech sector. And so your thoughts on the opportunities for collaboration, you know, what are the best practices and the ways in which the U.S. and its private sector should think about supporting Africa's digital transformation? You know, for the digital transformation, we did the exercise to estimate also the, the investment needed for that to happen and the time frame. So we're talking 10 years and the price tag on that is $100 billion. So by no means, there's not one government, not one, all governments or uh, private sector alone. I mean, it needs everybody. So what I want to say is that this is the time really to, to engage with Africa and with African institutions and with the African Union and with the African Development Bank and with the NEPAD, AUDA, the, our development agency as well to implement the different aspects because it's meant to be, as I said, a master plan, but everyone is invited. And yes, the U.S. has great technologies, has great initiatives and has the know-how. This is the time really to engage with Africa at all levels. There's so much work to be done, but also much opportunities and Africa in general. Despite the challenge of COVID-19, remains a continent of vast opportunities. I think that's a great note to end our show. Let me thank our guests and we'll see everyone in two weeks. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.